Please stand for the reading of God's word from Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zembulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied this nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning again and welcome. I'm Travis. I'm the pastor here. It's good to be with you this morning, this first Sunday in Advent. As you see, things look a little bit different. As I've been trying to point out, uh, over the course of the fall, the Christian calendar revolves around a different set of values, a different set of actions than what the world's calendar does. And we've entered into now a season of waiting. So kids, do you see anything different on the stage behind me? There are some colors you might see, some purple. Purple in the Christian calendar is a color of expectation and waiting. It reminds us, read to, that we are waiting for Christ our King to come. And the candles represent light in many ways. And today we're talking about Jesus coming as the light of the world. We're reminding ourselves through physical things of who Jesus is and what our lives revolve around. Uh, so today we're starting an Advent series, a series that's just going to be between now and Christmas, uh, that we're calling Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, actually based off of the hymn that we sang this morning to open our service up. Uh, it is a hymn that draws out themes of what the Christian hope in Jesus is all about. Uh, that our King would come and set his people free, free from our fears, from our pain, from our past, uh, that he would give us rest and strength and comfort, that he would be the imprint of what our hearts have always longed for and all the things that we have been chasing down so hard, and that he would raise us up to be seated in glory with him. So we're going to spend time in this series across some different texts, not just in Isaiah, but through some different books as well on verses that expand on these themes that we've just talked about, about waiting for this long-expected hope to finally arrive, so that in this season, when we can so easily uh, put our hope in gifts that fade year after year, that instead, we would find our hope in something that does not fade, in the gift 
that all the gifts that we might hope to get on Christmas point to a gift that's both free and makes you free as well. And that's Jesus, our long-awaited Savior. Uh, And over the course of this sermon series, I'm going to be doing an exchange with another pastor, Pastor Troy Albee from Great South Shore, which is a sister church of Christ the King, that you all might get to hear different tones, harmonies, so to speak, of what it is to anticipate Christ's coming. So next week, Troy will be here, and I'll be at his church. The week after, I'll be back. We'll just switch a total of two times. But my hope is that you all will get to hear a diversity, a chorus of voices about Christ coming through this series. Uh, But today we're in Isaiah 9, a passage that draws us to look to Jesus as this long-expected light for people stuck in dark places, uh, who brings the dawn, as the text might say if we looked at it a little differently, shine, we could say, as dawn. Jesus brings the dawn to those who have been in a long, dark night. I don't know if you felt like you're in that place, but the hope of this passage is that Jesus brings light to those places and brings us out of dark places into the full warmth of the day. And so this morning we're going to look at the text revealing Jesus in this light through three things, where the light starts in verse 1, what the light looks like in verses 3 through 5, and how that light arrives in verses 6 through 7. So where the light starts, what it looks like, and how it arrives. And kids, because I know you're with us this morning, I'm going to give you some super secret tips as the things we're going to talk about. You're going to hear the words light, joy, and king. You listen for those things as I'm talking this morning? Light, joy, and king. Let's see where those come out. But before we do that, I invite you to pray with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you give and you give and you give that your son is that great expression of your giving heart for us, that you run us down, that you chase after us with your gifts, that we can't outrun your giving, that we can't outguess and outhope your giving, that you exceed all our expectations. But as we confess this morning in our confession, God, too often we set our sights on something so much smaller. But God, I pray that you would come and fill us up this morning, that you would lift up our eyes to see you as the light that illuminates everything we've been lacking, all the dark places in our hearts, that we might be a people who are free. In your Son's name and by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Let's begin in verses 1 through 2 here, where the light starts. If you have your Bibles, feel free to keep those open. If you don't, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Uh, We're starting in verses 1 through 2 of Isaiah 9 here. So where does this light that God is promising to bring to his people actually start? Uh, Verse 1 says, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. So where the light is coming first that God is promising here is on the northernmost tribes of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali. Uh, These tribes have been walking in darkness the longest. 
uh, for a couple reasons that we're going to talk about. They were located along what was called the Way of the Sea. It was a trade route that ran through the Sea of Galilee, down through the Jordan River, that connected Mesopotamia to Egypt. It was part of an important transfer point, you might say, between those two great empires in the ancient world. As such, this was a primary, a choice route for attacking if you were invading somewhere like Israel. It was an important choke point to take hold of so that you could control what came in and what went out of the area. And as such, it was some of the first area to fall in Assyria's invasion of Israel, which Isaiah previously in this book, in the earlier chapters, had been warning Israel time and again, which God through other prophets had been warning Israel time and again, would come if they continued to refuse, as chapter 8 talks about, to walk in the ways of the Lord. Instead, they chose to walk in other ways, to not receive his gentleness, as that chapter says, but to look for something else. So in part, they are in darkness because they are under this broader sweep of the northern tribes that Assyria has conquered. And they're walking in that deep darkness of being a people who don't control their own destiny anymore. But they are also under the spiritual darkness that led them there. All throughout our Nehemiah series, we were talking about the people of God went into exile. Assyria conquering the northern tribes was the first step of that exile. The people went there because they no longer wanted to walk with God. They were walking in deep spiritual darkness. So it's both a physical darkness that they feel. They're not their own. They're controlled by people who don't care about them, who are brutal towards them. And they're also in spiritual darkness that they have no connection to the things of light and life in God. And it seems that in this primary trade route area that they would have been among the first tribes to fall. So they have been sitting in the darkness the longest. They've been in anguish for a long, long time, maybe longer than anyone else. Yet maybe surprisingly, the text draws us to focus on this place, Naphtali, Zebulun, Galilee, the way of the sea, the first to fall, the farthest maybe from God spiritually and geographically, as also being the first place where the light comes back. God starts his light dawning, his hope coming back, the resurrection of relationship in the place where the light first went out. With the people who were farthest from them in their hearts. This shows us a God who does not forget the dark places that we even bring ourselves into, the dark places others bring us into. He does not forget his people walking in darkness. God remembers. He prioritizes those that have been in darkness the longest and he brings light there first. I want you to hear that this morning as we think about all of our own personal darkness and anguish. The ways that you've been walking in the dark for a long time, God remembers and brings light back. As the way that we, we think about our, our families, maybe at this time just going through Thanksgiving, maybe that was painfully awkward for you. Maybe getting together with family is not a great thing. As we come through the holidays, as we start to remember all the ways that our family, our absence of family maybe, is deeply broken and heartbreaking for us, remember that God remembers the dark places 
and brings light there first. And after weeks of gun violence in Chesapeake, Colorado Springs, Charlottesville, after a long year of gun violence in places like Highland Park, Illinois, Uvalde, Texas, Laguna Woods, California, Buffalo, New York, I could keep going on as we are reminded of the ways that we are a people continually still, it seems like, week in and week out, year in and year out, a country that is walking in deep brokenness and darkness. Hear that God remembers those walking in dark places. They are not lost and forgotten. They are not left behind because they are difficult or stubborn. Isaiah 8, this chapter before our chapter, talks about the people being difficult to deal with, unwilling to listen to God. 2 Kings goes even further, showing that the people of the northern kingdom were not just stubborn and difficult, but actually evil. They did terrible, awful things to each other. And yet God remembers those people. Difficult, stubborn, even evil people, the northern tribes walking in a darkness of their own making, not someone else's making, the light comes back there first. Not to the good people, not to the people keeping all the rules, not to the people that have never walked away, but God's heart goes running, leaping after those who have been in a darkness of their own making. In what way do you need to hear that today? That God remembers people walking in darkness. That God remembers people walking in a darkness of their own making. That his heart has not stopped being near them, but is closer to them now maybe than ever before. That God's heart is not closer to me because I am keeping the rules, but that God is always running after his people, no matter if they are the farthest from him geographically or spiritually or the closest to them. His heart is always remembering those in dark places and longing to bring his light back there. Let the Holy Spirit gently remind your heart of that truth this morning. But I want to talk a little bit about what this dawning light looks like when it comes back to dark places here in our second point, what the light looks like through verses 3 through 5. If we look there, when God's light starts to show up on these places that have sat in darkness for a long, long time, verses 3 through 5 shows us that it is amazing that what it looks like is a life that's amazing. It's a joy-infused, restorative, powerful light that we see coming in God's presence. And joy is probably the loudest characteristic of God bringing light into dark places that these verses highlight. If you look at verse 3 there, just look at how many times joy or something like joy is jumping out of this one tiny verse. It says, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. They are glad, or we could say joyful, when they divide the spoil. That's a lot of joy. That is joy upon joy. This is what it looks like when God's light dawns in darkness. It is joy. Joy coming again to dark places. 
God brings joy back. Maybe you've felt the absence of joy in your life. You've felt this spiritual darkness and depression. Hear that when God comes in, one of the things that God does bring back that is not lost, that is not just gone forever, that's not this is just the way my life is going to be, that when God shows up for you, when the light comes back, what the light brings is joy. Amen. Don't give up hope on joy this season. And it's a hope that's overflowing with joy because of what we see in verses 4 through 5. There's a powerful restoration that God brings to a broken down people. Look with me there. God promises in these verses, if we look at them, to show up for his people in life-changing, even world-changing ways. We see him showing up in life-changing ways in verse 4. It says he is breaking their yokes. That's another way of talking about the burdens of enslaved people. Again, this was a conquered people, a people who were now the slaves, the possession, at least the second-class citizens of a country that did not care about them and did not like them and only wanted to exploit them. God is stepping into those situations of injustice and breaking the ties that bind them there. He is breaking the shackles of the slave, the yoke and the burden of the servant. He is breaking the things that led to oppression apart. It says he's also getting rid of the staff and the rod. Those things would have been used to beat the servants and the slaves of the Assyrian kingdom. He's not going to let anyone hurt them anymore. When God brings light back into your life, he is not letting anyone hurt you anymore. And he's not just doing this in personal life-changing ways. He's also doing it in world-changing ways. Verse 5, it says he's putting away every need someone might have for what we could call war gear, for, for war boots, for, for boots to fight with, for clothes to fight in that have been stained by the signs of battle. All that is going to be thrown away. It's going to be burned up. God is trying to send the message to his people here that what you once needed to have because life was brutal and ugly, you no longer need to have when he shows up. There will be no more need for war, no more need for the things of war because God has put away all enemies and all evil everywhere. He's telling Israel, you can hang it all up. You can walk away. You can stop fighting because there is no longer a need to fight when I show up. When I make all things right, there is no longer a need for war. There will be no one and nothing left for you to fight when God fully comes back in your life. When he fully is present here, there will no longer be war. God's talking about fixing the whole world. He starts with Israel in the darkest places, but he is saying, my eye does not stop here. My gaze doesn't stop with one person or one place. He cares about injustice everywhere. He cares about brokenness everywhere. God wants to fix not just you and I, but the entirety of the world that he so loves. The light is dawning here, yes. The light may be dawning with you and me in this month, in this season, but it's going to spread out from here to the rest of the world. It's meant to change. This light is meant to change everything for everyone. 
all the darkness of the world, when God's light shows up, is put away. That's what it looks like when God's promised light dawns on dark places. Joy, restoration, peace, safety. And all of that is made possible by verses 6 through 7, how the light actually arrives, how these things fundamentally change, how they're going to change from being servants and slaves, from being an oppressed people, from being spiritually broken people who don't want anything to do with God, how that changes comes through verses 6 and 7. It comes through the arrival of a king a king who is going to bring an end to all oppression and war, who is going to bring light, creating all this joy and restoration and peace. That's what these verses show us is going to happen, that all this moves, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, are moving towards 6 and 7. It is the anchor for why the other things can happen. It happens because this king is not just any old king. Verses 6 and 7 describe him in a way that no other king in ancient Israel had ever been described, would ever be described, that anyone would ever dare to describe a king. It describes him, verse 6, as the everlasting father. That's a king who will not die, a father of his people. It calls him a mighty God, the mighty God. You would not call any king, any person in Israel, God and expect to live unless that person was God in the flesh. There is something that Isaiah is calling to us here that is mysterious, that is different, that somehow it seems the transcendent God of the universe, Yahweh, the great I Am, is now going to come amidst his people. God himself is going to come and rule in a way that Psalm 46 tells us is exactly the way that God rules. We read that this morning in our call to worship. He is a God who makes wars cease. That's what verses 3 to 5 are all about. He is a God in Psalm 46 who comes breaking and destroying all the tools of war, all the bows, all the chariots. He burns. He brings dawn to the darkness in Psalm 46. Isaiah is promising something astounding, shocking even. Not just a light like this that would come for people walking in deep brokenness and bring joy and restoration and peace, but that God himself, the God who is pictured in Psalm 46, is the God who is pictured as king in this passage, coming to be their king, coming to do all this for them. The mighty and everlasting God was coming himself, not sending a messenger, not sending a proxy, not sending just a good man, not even sending an angel, that he was going to come and do this himself. This is astounding. 
for a thousand different reasons, not just because of the distance between God and man, the way that even the sanctuary and the temple showed just what it would take to even come slightly into God's presence, that God in a new way would come to dwell among his people where he would be light and their darkness would be washed away, not taking them with it, but bringing them back into his light. This is astounding, not just because the God of the universe is coming to one tiny planet to help. This is astounding not just because God is doing that for a broken planet, for a broken people, but for how the dawning of the light of God's presence as king would come. It would come not through obvious power and immediate glory descending from the heavens, but it says through a child, through something small and fragile, through a son, it says in particular, And even more than that, a son to sit on the throne of David, verse 7. This means someone from the line of King David would be the king to do these things. The light then would not just be for us from the outside, it would also be one of us. God was going to bring the light finally inside the human heart taking on the darkness that we experience, that we create at its very source, the sin that shrouds our souls in this deep, continual darkness. And he would do that by becoming one of us, by keeping his promises to us, by keeping his promises to a people who had long walked in darkness, to David, who he knew would mess up in terrible, awful ways, yet promised to David that from you I will give you a son to always sit on your throne. This was how the light would dawn in dark places. How it would dawn over sin itself through a king who seems to be both somehow God most high, everlasting father, and yet also a son of David, a man of the earth. Someone who would not simply point to the light, but that would be the light, who would be the light in us, with us, for us. This light, as John's gospel explains so well, the light of the world, as John says, was and continues to be Jesus Christ, the God-man, both God and man, both a son of David and everlasting mighty God. He's the promised one who brings the light of his life, his peace, into our very souls by becoming truly one of us, so that it could be said he suffered and died as one of us, for us, as one of us, though still at the same time truly God, taking on the darkness of our sin and death in the way that only he could, that if we would experience that in him and with him, we might not be crushed by this darkness, but that instead the light would swallow it up that life would swallow up death. Because on the cross, he took all the darkness spiritually that was ours and nailed it there with him that it might die with him and we with it. 
And yet when the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ by faith, the light of Christ's redemptive resurrection power dawns in our souls and makes us alive in him that we for the first time might again walk in the freedom of being sons and daughters of God Most High, being a people who have true, deep joy, who have real restoration, who are truly free from all our bonds, all our yokes, all our oppression, who are actually able to set down all our war and conflict, not that the world stops being the world around us, but that in the midst of the world, we are no longer under its simple influences and circumstances, but we have a light within us that cannot be put out. Amen. I know I have another witness in here. Come on. That's the hope that we have in Jesus. That it's through Jesus, God the Son, that God brings the light on the inside. Now that's something that Amazon cannot do. That Walmart's Black Friday sales cannot do. That Apple products, intuitive as they may be, cannot do for you. Everything we may try to buy or get or give at Christmas is only hanging ornaments and lights on the tree. It cannot change the tree into something else. God has come in Jesus Christ that in you and I, we might not just staple a little bit of righteousness on, that we might not just staple a little bit of patience onto the tree, that we might not just attach to the tree a little bit of goodness and kindness, but that instead the entire tree, the entirety of our souls and beings as we were meant to be from the beginning, might become an entire life of light, filled with light, exuding light. Jesus has come that you and I might be changed from within, not that we staple an external goodness onto us that God might accept us, but that in God's acceptance, in his putting sin to death through Jesus, the light of the gospel emanates out from us in all the joy and restoration and power that it has in a world that is still walking in deep darkness. This is the hope of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. The hope that we might know that God means to make the light shine in us from the inside out. That he would take pain on himself to make light shine from the inside out. That he would get his hands dirty for you. That he would go through years of boredom. That he would go through hours of excruciating pain. That he would experience rejection. That he would be constantly misunderstood. Constantly disapproved of. Constantly thought to be a person he was not. So that you and I might be remembered in our walking and deep darkness. In light of seeing that's who Jesus is through this passage, I want to I ask you to do two practical things to bring this light home in a concrete way this season. First, I want to ask you to invite, to invite this light in if you have not before, to turn to Christ for the darkness of your life, for your sin, for your anguish, for your anger, for your frustration, for your apathy for the oppression or the pain that you've faced. Ask God to bring a light there that washes over the darkness so that you might truly be free in Him no matter what your circumstances say. And if you have asked 
Jesus to be that light, then welcome him in anew this season. Let these weeks between now and Christmas be a time where you truly drink in this light. Let it shine on the uncomfortable dark places that you have not wanted to deal with this year or that you have been desperately trying to deal with this year and just not had success with. Places maybe you've even given up hope on God ever bringing light to that, on that ever being redeemed, on that ever having something other than pain associated with it, on those places where all you feel is shame. Invite the light to do something that you cannot expect. Second, I want to ask you to get to know, to know this hope in a real and more tangible way in these next few weeks than maybe you have any Christmas prior. To sit in it and let what God is promising really sink in until the hope of being made new, of being completely transformed from the inside out, having all of your darkness turned into light, until that really feels tangible. Even if just for a passing second. Use this as a a point of restarting to look at what is it that I really have in Jesus? What is this gift that surpasses all the gifts? And I know that can be a hard thing to do, especially feeling like I I don't know theology that well. I don't even know the Bible that well. How am I supposed to do some of these things? I want to give you a little bit of a help. Uh, The other week I prayed a a prayer of thanksgiving about what we have in Jesus. I I wrote that down and and spelled it out a little bit more uh, in just a post that I'm calling the I haves of the gospel. I'll I'll see if I can work with Laura to get that on our church website. But right now it's on my uh, ramshackle website, thedrakepassage.org. You can just see the I haves of the gospels that tries to dig into what do we really have in Jesus? What is the joy that we can have out of these things? If you need help, use that as a starting point. Use other devotions as a starting point. But don't sit at that place where I say, well, this is hard, and I let it go. But take one small step. Find something that can help you. Let this light really be something that I know that I have in the midst of all that's going on. Because we really have a richness in God that surpasses all of our understanding, that surpasses all the darkness that we experience. I want you, God wants you to know that light at Christmas. To have an experience as those walking in deep darkness on whom a great light has dawned. To know that that light in Christ is yours forevermore. Let's pray. I want to offer you a few moments to to talk to God in your heart about some of the things that we've just heard and thought about together. I invite you to, to spend a minute thanking God for the ways that he brings light into our darkness or to confess some of the ways that that you're sitting in a darkness of your own making or to just ask God to bring us more into his light to be beyond our strength and ability. Let's pray.
Father, we ask that you would hear these prayers and by your grace that you would answer that we might be transformed from the inside out by the mystery and the wonder that we have in your son Jesus, our King. In your name we pray, amen.